0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 56 of So Important, the interview podcast. Today, we're going to talk a little bit of comic book history with our guest, Dr. Alex Grand, the founder of the Comic Book Historians, which is a social media presence dedicated to, quote, mapping together disparate elements that connected the co-development of the comic book medium and the superhero genre. Dr. Grand is a significant media presence on issues dealing with the history of the comic book medium. You may have seen him on one of his many television or other social media appearances, including prestigious documentaries relating to comic book history. He's been interviewed many times about his work, is highly quoted and respected throughout the comic book industry, and perhaps most interesting of all, Alex has a real-life secret identity. Quite impressively, he is a practicing neuro-ophthalmologist, helping patients overcome their nerve-related visual challenges. But he couldn't escape his love of comic books, and here he is with a brand new book on the history of the genre that will be published in just a couple months. The book is Understanding Superhero Comic Books, A History of Key Elements, Creators, Events, and Controversies. So Alex, as one who has collected comics for many years, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show, and we're very glad to have you.
1: I really appreciate you having me on. That's a beautiful introduction. Thank you for your time.
0: Well, thank you for your time. And I really am looking forward to getting into it. But before we do, I thought maybe you could just say a few words about who you are and how you got into this topic and what led you to write this book. In 2015,
1: you know, I had been into my medical practice for a few years. And I think there was maybe a void of academic work In my life, I think, and I was already a comic fan. I was a big Marvel nut as a kid. I loved He-Man comics, things like that. And then I think I started finding out that on social media that there were comic book aficionados, and that there's a whole history there to find out about. Not just of superhero comics or the superhero genre, but also of comic the comic book medium, the key players, the key uh, advancements in both, and how they both converged in nineteen. uh Superheroes were not really present before. They were proto superheroes, but the way Superman was created and how the comic book medium, the industry really took off uh, once it adopted that particular genre on the newsstands. And then how they became where they were and how as a kid in the 80s, all that stuff I read, the X-Men and whatnot, where did all that stuff come from? And how did the industry turn into what it did at that point? And how did it sort of crystallize into those commercial visual units that we call comic books or even graphic novels, how did all that crystallize into its current form that the industry still is selling uh, at this point? Uh, these commercial units that require um, artistic savvy, but as well as a knowledge of of basic commerce of buying for low and selling for more, um, in order to keep an industry going like that, um, and then also. The the areas of distribution and sales that allow it to continue to exist? And what were those parameters that required it to become what it is to stay viable in the marketplace? You know, that that's, a, that's basically what I go through in understanding superhero comic books. And uh, I think just as a kid, just reading mini comics in my cereal boxes, you know, that sense of wonder that I got Um, just stayed with me. And I think just as an adult, as a medical doctor who's had to categorize all sorts of conditions and disease states to apply that to the studies of superheroes and the comic books and their co-development and to define and uh, explain and put it down into a narrative history, you know, it became like this eight-year obsession that finally is coming together in this book that's uh, releasing in a few months.
0: I wanted to talk about a concept of realism and how that's been injected in the comics. I know that that's something you've thought hard about and that you've written about.
1: Well, that's the narrative arc, right? Because, you know, Danny Fingeroth, who's a former editor at Marvel, and he wrote the Stan Lee biography, the definitive one, I think. Um, But he messaged me after he uh, supplied a blurb. And he was like, you know, you put together all the competing narratives on superheroes and put it into one narrative history. And he's like, you pulled it off. And the way I did that was I discussed realism. The the quest for making superheroes more realistic as the way the industry stayed viable and what led fans to continue to buy it in new generations and how that ultimately became the lifeline for the industry economically is to make superheroes more relatable, less cheesy, and that, that created the framework uh, for the narrative history of of the superhero comic book industry uh, I, in my book. I, I use the quest for furthering realism as the overall narrative arc to the thing.
0: The general perception that I think a lot of people would have, to the extent that they're aware of this issue of realism at all, is that Marvel came along and Stan Lee started injecting Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four who fought among themselves. And that kind of changed the tone toward moving toward that more realistic direction. But what I'm hearing from you is that you're saying something a little bit different and a little bit bigger than that.
1: Yeah, it is. Because that's just one part of it. First, you know, we have to think of like, where did the superhero come from? So there's the proto-superhero elements, and they come together from elements that are in science fiction, pulp fiction, that were uh, in movies like Zorro and Douglas Fairbanks, The Black Pirate, things that Bob Kane or Jerry Siegel would say in interviews, um, that they got elements from that to create. You know, their characters, Batman and Superman. And and it goes bigger than that. Newspaper strips, the comic strips, Dick Tracy, Little Orphan Annie, a lot of narrative elements that come together. And- what were elements that were present in those things that made them successful? And Little Orphan Annie and Milton Kniff's Tearing the Pirates, it was the realism of the people, of the characters, speaking from the heart. Stan Lee, you know, uses a lot of those techniques that were already there in comics. But he, that's one aspect of it. You know, even just Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster's grounding their alien character, Superman, as a human being named Clark Kent, creating a secret identity to try to Um, meld in with humans so that it doesn't get treated terribly or at least can live some sort of normal life. That's some aspect of realism that they throw in. And uh, ultimately, there's a whole narrative history of why did superheroes fall out of favor by the mid 40s? You know, some would say it's because the war was over and America didn't need to feel macho anymore. I I think there's more to it than that. I think it's because there's a certain standard superhero in the early 40s that loses a certain sense of relatability and people wanted things they could relate to by the mid 40s. So then you have other genres being explored. You have romance, you have horror comics, crime comics. Those are going to have a little more realism to them. So people start shifting to those things. I think once those things get abused in the early 50s, and you have a lot of very violent comics and newsstands and parental groups getting upset, and the comics code coming in, n- now you need a genre, again, that can sell, that can have at least some relatability. And I think it precedes Stanley. I think Julia Schwartz in the 50s really starts figuring out, you know, with Bob Kaniger and uh, Carmine Infantino and Joe Kubert in that showcase for that first premiere, of the Flash, uh, the Silver Age Flash, that they can actually get a normal guy, not an alien, nothing that exotic, just a normal guy, a normal everyday schmo, and then bombard him with some strange science fiction bizarre thing. And now he's starting to wonder, what just happened to me? Why is this bullet moving so slow? It's a process of self-discovery of a normal guy Trying to figure himself out, and that then creates a whole new aspect of relatability and realism to the superhero that Superman just didn't have, and a lot of those Golden Age characters just didn't have. They were a little, they were a lot more simple than that. And I think um, Julius Schwartz brings that sense of relatability using his 1930s experience as a science fiction pulp reader and pulp agent into the mix. And and part of that process was revitalizing golden age characters. There was a Golden Age Flash. His origin was a little silly. He was he breathed hard water and now could run fast. Didn't make sense. Julie Schwartz wanted a more realistic take on science fiction. How about electricity mixing with chemicals? That just sounds more interesting and it's more grounded in science fiction and more
0: grounded in normal people trying to figure themselves out, trying to figure out their own powers. Batman, who's always a favorite topic and one that everybody knows, is in a way the ultimate realistic character. I mean, you know, he doesn't even have superpowers. He doesn't have
1: superpowers, but some would say that his power is having a lot of money and a lot of willpower. You know, is he really a superhero? He's got a cape. Um, He definitely has an emblematic costume, but I look at him more as a costume detective and less so like a superhero. The characters that he's more based on are. Dick Tracy, you know Sherlock Holmes, Harry Houdini, you know Zorro. So th- th- it comes into like more into the costumed adventurer, costume detective uh, kind of character, and not a science fiction character. Although, and and he utilizes a lot of character, a lot of tropes from the pulps. You know, Gardner Fox gave him a utility belt. That's like Doc Savage's uh, utility vest. So there's definitely a pulp, you know, detective crime element. To Batman, that some of those other characters don't have, but he's definitely in the DC universe. Now, anytime he's paired up with people like Superman, it, it to me, it almost feels like a genre collision. I find it hard to swallow that. I, I feel like they're different. I do think
0: we should give some props to what Stan Lee did.
1: Absolutely. Now, Stan Lee takes it to a whole nother level. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko took that to a whole new level, and that's ultimately triggered by Martin Goodman, his publisher, saying, look, They're revitalizing Golden Age characters. They're bringing back superheroes. They're doing something different this time. Let's get our own thing going on this so we can kind of chase what's happening Um, without, one, getting sued for mimicking Superman, and two, staying within the confines of the Comics Code Authority. So there was a lot more of a game involved in doing this. So this was hard. Um, DC was known for suing other companies if those companies' characters look like their characters. So they had to go a whole nother way. And that, that happens with Fantastic Four and eventually the Avengers. Now, now what, why are those characters, what, what did they do really? Well, the Human Torch was, again, just like the Flash, a retcon of a Golden Age character. Instead of it being an android, he was a, a teenage kid that was bombarded by cosmic rays. Because he was a teenager, he was also very brash and hotheaded and um, liked to drive girls in his convertible and hang out at the malt shop. So what, what they're doing at Marvel is they're combining it with other genres now that have a little more relatability to the everyday person. And that drives realism even more, I think. See, the 1950s DC guys, they're tempered by an Eisenhower-era sense of conformity. They all talk the same. In the 60s, the Stanley dialogue on those characters, they all sound different from each other. There's a way more of a diversity approach to it. Each character is unique. But then they also employ... Although it's the same overall story as Flash, where a bizarre science fiction event happens, they're starting to employ the monster genre too. These powers are a curse. The Thing is character is cursed. The Hulk is cursed. His anger, you know, gets the best of him. He's a walking nuclear bomb. There's a huge anxiety there. But it's also really implementing a lot of 1950s, you know, radioactive monster storylines into those characters. So so they're 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 combining the genre to make it more interesting and, and more and even more relatable, but also adding sincere imperfections, character flaws. They they're almost cursed with their powers. They're so unhappy and so neurotically unhappy, but that they can't help, you know, helping people. It's it's just it's almost like their their conscience just gets the better of them.
0: Peter Parker quit being Spider-Man on more than one occasion. I know a couple of the others walked away. You yeah. Know and had and, and, and the guilt,
1: the guilt just drives them crazy, right? And that, uh, that, that's a, a more Marvel thing, that's uh, that's a 60s Marvel thing, and that again is even more advancement in the sense of realism
0: to the superhero. That was huge. So, jumping ahead to the 70s, then at DC, you kind of had a renaissance in this kind of thinking, and all of a sudden, you had uh, Denny O'Neill. My favorite artist, uh, Neil Adams. Neil Adams, yeah. Putting together some amazing work in Green Lantern and Batman. At the same time, you had Kirby doing all kinds of interesting things.
1: The social realism of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, where you're taking that, let's depict superheroes in a world that's right outside our window. Let's take that to the next level with social realism, which is what Green Lantern, Green Dar- Arrow does, talking about environmental issues, drug addiction. It was definitely more of a social approach, like a social worker approach almost to the superheroes. And that's arguably even more relatable. But in the affidavit model of newsstand sales, that didn't sell because some would argue it still lacked the adventure that is a story that a lot of teenage kids would expect to get from a superhero adventure. But I love the art and I love the stories. Kirby's New Gods, that was an innovative, really interesting approach let's look into the cosmos and try to answer some unknown questions. And you know, what happened to the old gods? And who are these new ones? Jim Starlin's Thanos character, that was much more organically successful. Although some would argue, it's a space god story that's answering what's going on out there. And it's a new set of gods. Why did that do well? And why didn't the new gods do well? And my personal theory is, it's the realism aspect. Darkseid, the new gods villain, He was on the search for the anti-life equation. Personally, I think it's an interesting concept. It's about taking away the will people, willpower of people. But I think it's a concept that's not relatable. I don't think it's a realistic concept. What did Thanos want to do to do? He wanted to kill everybody. Death, I think, is a far more relatable concept. And the fear of death is something far more relatable and realistic. Jim Starlin, when he answers questions about death, he says, "Look, you know, if you don't if you have a superhero story and they're not afraid to die, that's not a real story." And and I think that's true. I think death is just a very relatable concept. And introducing the fear of death was another aspect or another advancement in the realism of the superhero story. That's where Jim Starlin succeeded and was able to then create a meta series of Infinity Gauntlet storylines that Kirby was trying to do in the early 70s but wasn't given the chance. It was Starlin that really put um the fear of death in those stories because when Thanos uses his ship sanctuary he kills like six planets at once and people are like wow we could not stop it no matter what we try to do we couldn't prevent that holocaust or that genocide from happening and it made these superheroes realize just how powerless they can be and that and that that's interesting you don't really you, you don't run into that as the as the main story line In a lot of things, you know, I I don't think you can make superheroes and not have risk and still be applicable to the modern reader. I I just don't think you can.
0: The the fear of death is one of four things that you identified when you talk about what does realism mean. You talked about relatability, imperfections, the fear of death, deconstruction. Are those the four things that, when you think about this, that kind of bring the story together for you? Yes,
1: there is another aspect which is in the book too, um, and that's. Modernization. So I, I would say before deconstruction, there'd be modernization. Modernization is like the, what John Byrne did with the Fantastic Four, reutilizing a lot of the stuff that, let's say, Stanley and Jack Kirby did, but modernizing it for a newer audience so that they don't feel like it's dated and that it's the same old stuff, but modernized in a way that is just a lot cooler and more interesting. And so you can then still maintain the world that was built in the 60s and 70s, and then make it fresh and new for new readers. So modernization is 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 an important part of it. And that's, I think, what the comics industry is trying to do all the time now. They're not trying to kill everybody, and they're not trying to deconstruct everything. They're trying to modernize it, throw more cell phones in there, throw um, storylines, throw more um genders in there, throw more of this in there, try to make it more modern. You utilize a lot of those storylines from the 60s and 70s, but make it more relatable by using things that a modern reader can attend to. But on the actual character of the superhero and its and its realism, yeah, deconstruction would be it. Because see, Alan Moore, his whole approach was if superheroes existed in the real world, just how messed up would they be? Just how awful and narcissistic, and selfish, and and detached from everyday human concerns, would they would they be? Um, how elitist would they be? Part of the main definition, which one of my friends Pete Coogan writes, part of the main definition of superhero is the mission of justice. The other two things you need is a superpower or special ability, and then some sort of costume or code name. And now those are the three basic elements. When you deconstruct it, what, what just happened? Well, you've just now realized that in the real world, if these superheroes are real, they give up that mission of justice pretty fast. Or if they do keep it, it gets distorted into some fascist fantasy. And so now it's so real, well, the definition just self-imploded and now they're not even superheroes anymore.
0: We're in a universe now that's much bigger than just DC and Marvel, even though they're obviously still the leaders. In terms of dealing with these issues, do you think that the comic book industry is, is in a good place today? Some of that comes down
1: to competing media. So in the 50s, they had black and white TV and that was a huge thought like, okay, we're going to get reduced sales because people have TV in their living rooms. Comics to compete would then have to, cr- could do the superheroes and do art that that TV shows couldn't match that sort of special effect that the artists could draw. So, get a good Gil Kane Green Lantern story. There's no early 1950s TV show that even comes remotely close to that. So, comics had that edge. And then as in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I would say that, you know, shows and movies still couldn't quite do that. Once the late 80s happened, all the commercial units fell where, where they were. The direct market came up. And now you have this continuum of realism. Now what's happened is the comics industry now will then employ certain aspects that were pioneered by those other people and just try to modernize it and keep it more relatable. Meanwhile, other media comes in. The internet has really provided other things to do than just video games. They've all provided other things to do other than read comics. So, a lot of young kids... They're they're looking at their iPad. They're not they're not reading comics a lot of time. It's it's being kept alive by a collector's market of people that are like my age or older, uh, who who find it still interesting. So so what what do those companies have to do to survive? And it's really Stan Lee is really the one I credit with pushing this, push the genre into other media, push it into you know in the seventies. That's what kind of he did. He ended up saying, well, let's put it in comic strips. Let's get, let's make magazines. Let's make Marvel magazines a little more adult themed. Let's push TV and film. Let's push the Hulk TV show with Bill Bixby, right? Let's expand because, you know, there's a certain limit on narrative revolutions we can really do with this. So, let's just try to modernize it in comics and let's also then expand it into other media. So, is is the comic book industry in itself in a good place? Well, I think it just comes down with how viable it is 20 years from now. I think my age group will even age out and stop paying into it. So, it really comes down to how interesting will they be to young kids who are really looking at their iPad, really being raised on YouTube and TikTok. Are they going to continue to read it. And that's hard. I think that there's always room for comics, like you said, outside of the big two. There's always going to be people writing their own stories. And comics are where people work out their IP ideas that end up becoming TV and film at this point. So, it's going to still continue, but I don't know if it will continue in the comic book way in the direct market Uh, in, in direct market comic book stores in quite the same way. I think if anything, it'll be other media that keep those characters alive. And they might come up with albums here and there that then come up with new adventures that then they can later turn into TV and film. I think that TV and film is going to be a savior, but also in a way, the inevitable cause of the comic books reduced viability moving forward.
0: I think it's uh, different expectations now. You know, it used yeah. to be that was the thing that came out every month and you got it. Now it's a character and you see how it evolves in the context of all the different media and all the different opportunities that are out there. Yeah, we're just visually more picky than we ever were. Um, we so, more options. Yeah, there's so many
1: options. You know, how do you keep young kids interested? Uh, that's, that's the whole game.
0: I have to tell you... Um, this has been a great conversation and I could go on for hours. Uh, I've resisted a lot of my geeky instincts to, <laughs> in this conversation because there's so many avenues I would love to go on, but I think I did an okay job of keeping them in my hope is that your book will have a wider audience than just the you know hardcore comic book enthusiast. because i think you tell a great story and the way you deal with this issue of realism is a great one it's fascinating and i'm so glad you came on the show and talked about it hey I
1: really thank you for having me that this was a real pleasure I, I i enjoyed it very much thank you all right
0: well thank you